We have an incredible panel of experts with us today, which I'll introduce now. We are joined by Lindsay Wiley, Professor of Law and Director of the Health Law and Policy Program at the American University Washington College of Law. We're also joined by Tamar Sharon, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Technology and Co-Director of the Interdisciplinary Hub for Security, Privacy, and Data Governance at Radboud University, Nijmegen. We also have Nicholas Terry with us, Hall Render Professor of Law and Executive Director of the William and Christine Hall Center for Law and Health at the Indiana University Robert McKinney School of Law. And we're fortunate to have Craig Conniff with us today. He is Associate Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Health Data and Technology Initiative at the Silicon Flatiron Center at the University of Colorado School of Law. We've now been experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic for over a year. And in that time, we've seen increasing privatization of public health functions and services. This trend toward privatization predates the pandemic, but the scope and scale of the pandemic seems to have increased the role of private companies in addressing public health concerns and crises. Today, some of the world's largest and most powerful companies are supporting, perhaps even guiding, our public health response to the pandemic. Here are a few examples. Verily, which is one of Google's sister companies within the Alphabet corporate portfolio, operates Project Baseline, which offers COVID testing in at least 15 states. COVID-19 vaccines are developed by private companies like AstraZeneca and Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and they're distributed by retail stores, including Walgreens and CVS pharmacies. And Google and Apple have developed COVID-19 exposure notification apps that have been adopted by governments around the world. Our increasing reliance on private companies to address the pandemic and other private health concerns raises many questions that we'll discuss today. How did we end up in this situation and does it have to be this way? Can we trust private companies with something as important as public health when their primary motivation is to maximize profit? And what are the risks and benefits of their influence over our public health responses? So I'd like to turn things over to our panelists and give each of them a minute or two to tell us anything about themselves I may have missed during the introductions and to answer the following question. What do you find most promising or concerning about this trend toward privatizing public health? And I think I will start with Tamar first, uh, followed by Nick. Tamar? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, uh, Mason. And thanks for having me. I wanted to just stress the fact that I am not a legal expert. So I feel a little bit like the odd one out here, possibly. And I'm not a US-based scholar. So you pronounce the name of my university in my city pretty well, Mason. <laughs> that happens to be in the Netherlands, people who didn't know. Um, so I hope I can bring some insights from my field of expertise and where I live to this discussion. Uh, concerning your question, I would choose what I find to be most disconcerting or concerning about this phenomenon. Um, and I think there's two quick points I'd like to make there, also to preface our discussion. Um, I look into the the, the increased involvement of big tech in the health and medical sector. That's really what my research focuses on, at the ethical aspects of that involvement. And so the first point I'd like to say is that this increasing involvement of big tech in sectors like public health poses a number of risks that have to do with what I think we can call a legitimacy deficit. So these are companies that are contributing to reshaping sectors like health in which they lack domain expertise. Uh, and this influence grants them decision-making power at what we could call a higher cross-sectorial level, like national or even global public health policy. That's what we've seen in the COVID pandemic. 
Um, the second point I'd like to make is that these risks, these types of sectorial and cross-sectorial risks, cannot be addressed by the current privacy and data protection law that we have alone, neither in the United States, I think, or in Europe. And that's because handling or repurposing personal data uh, is no longer the only business model that these companies are um, drawing on as they move into health. They're busy developing what we could call computational infrastructure, which, just like our traditional infrastructure, of, of roads and sewage systems are becoming essential for the functioning of our societies today that are increasingly digital. Now, in this situation, a kind of uh, narrow focus on privacy and data protection uh, can even act as a smokescreen uh, to the growth of computational power on the part of these companies. So I would say that we have to take a kind of broader view of what's happening here in terms of the risks that this um, uh, brings forward and how to address them. Thank you so much, Tamar. Nick? Well, thank you, Mason, and uh, uh, wonderful to be here with all of you. I would uh, like to add a quick public service announcement uh, for uh, volume two of our COVID-19 policy playbook, uh, which is, uh, this volume is entitled Legal Recommendations for a Safer, More Equitable Future. It includes 39 chapters by more than 50 experts, including some of those on today's panel. Uh, it'll be released next week at publichealthwatch.org. Um, with regard to your question, um, it, it's a natural one, I guess, to start looking uh, at privatization. I mean, we entered the pandemic with our hands on the Bible of Jacobson. Uh, we we exit or begin our exit with serious questions about faith in deference, uh, whether public health measures can withstand scrutiny framed as from religious freedom access, uh, whether Jacobson applies to long-term rather than temporary restrictions, and thank goodness. Goodness, Lindsay is here to answer any questions we have about the scope of Section 361. Um, so as we look to rebuilding public health, um, looking beyond public authority seems natural. However, um, notwithstanding the historic failure of our public systems, so far private efforts have not shown themselves to be much of an improvement. Um, secondly, private entities lack the incentives to create a better public health mousetrap. Uh, some of our core pandemic problems turned out to be fragmentation, a lack of interoperability, failures that are well-known even caused by private entities in the clinical care space. Next, I think we need to be particularly vigilant as health status and health information become transactional. For example, a pandemic passport as an entry requirement for travel, concert attendance, or even going to work or school. Do we want private parties to control these data and set the data covenants and privacy policies, or are those public responsibilities? And I'm, I'm channeling some of Tamara's, Tamara's work here. Yet, despite my hesitancy, there are always exceptions. Um, I think we are about to enter a phase, uh, a historic opportunity to rebuild public health as the numbers come down. As the numbers come down, I think that will reawaken interest in contact tracing, hotspotting. And one of the keys here will be ramping up genomic surveillance and digital epidemiology, areas where the private sector is far ahead of public authorities. Thank you, Nick. Uh, let's go to Lindsay next and then Craig. Thank you. I want to thank uh, Mason and uh, Carmel and Chloe and Laura and everyone at Petrie Plum for organizing this important event and for including me. Um, I think, you know, my focus uh, as a public health law scholar who, who doesn't tend to focus particularly on kind of technological solutionism 
racism. My focus is more on um, what it means to think about privatization in a space um, that I view as deeply foundationally public, right? There is uh, there are so many ways in which public health measures um, historically have really been the crucible from which a lot of you know public law and public administration and administrative law have emerged. Um, and so thinking about what the role of really, in my mind, more public-private partnerships can be in this space is, is really critical and raises lots of interesting questions about the public-private divide um, more generally. I think in terms of what's promising and what's concerning here, um, what's most concerning to me are, are the instances where uh, privatization, especially a very hands-off approach to privatization, has been used, relied on really as a workaround um, for lack of investment, lack of sustained investment in public infrastructure um, for public health. And so I think the kind of primary example of that would be, in my mind, the um, federal partnership, pharmacy partnership for long-term care, the nursing home vaccination program, in which the federal government, you know, Operation Warp Speed administrators essentially said, um, you know, once we dump the doses on CVS and Walgreens, our our work here is done. Um, And they can, you know, submit reimbursement claims um, to third-party payers for the rest of it and figure it out themselves. That was disastrous in in, in multiple ways. Um, In terms of what's promising, I'll also use a vaccination example. I think, um, uh, you know, one of, I, one of one of the most promising examples I've seen of public health administration involves public-private partnerships, and that's Rhode Island's vaccination effort um, to prioritize hard-hit communities to do really engaged in place-based public health strategies. And that has involved a strong role for public administration and oversight with well-funded um, state and local health departments taking the lead, but they have played matchmaker with civil society groups, with private employers, um, with volunteer uh, uh, healthcare providers and professionals to really engage in an active effort. Um, so the opposite of a hands-off approach to privatization, but really a, a, a deeply public and well-financed and well uh, well administered on the public side partnership between those government agencies and across sectors, including housing authorities and, and uh, uh, employment regulators, as well as private employers, private housing um, uh, uh, authorities, and you know other kind of private entities uh, that allow outreach to communities to to bring vaccination directly to the places where people in high risk and high exposure groups live and work. So I think those are kind of two ends of the spectrum of what privatization can look like. In my mind, privatization is not inherently incompatible with a strong, responsive vision of of the state's responsibility. Um, The question is, what does it look like on the ground? Thank you, Lindsay. Craig? I've historically been focusing on the way the federal government um, has incentivized uh, policy in various ways to remove uh, control from states uh, over many of these areas and to try and push this into the arms of private industry. Um, And I think I want to make three points. Points. Uh, the first point is um, that um, uh, is, is the space in which I've been looking at, at, at this, uh, which is really a space w- in which uh, Nick is one of the pioneers in health data regulation. Um, so there, um, I've, I've argued that uh, the, the federal government has increasingly um, pressed policy in a way that has made it um, harder uh, for uh, states to continue with uh, data collection, health data um, infrastructure. 
uh, regulation and the like, um, and has um, moved that increasingly towards private industry. Uh, the second point I want to make is about incentives, and I think Nick basically made those points for me. Um, when it comes to either, to both sides of what I think of as health data regulation, on one hand, uh, sharing data in ways to improve health policy, and on the other hand, not sharing data to maintain privacy, uh, a private industry has warped incentives. Uh, on one hand, they want to, they don't want to share data in ways that won't make them profit, so they will keep the data, um, and um, and we um, and we've seen that. Uh, in, in, in various cases where there are sort of private databases being maintained um, regarding, let's say, uh, health pricing. Um, this is the Gobel case for those of you who follow this. Uh, you know, the, the company um, at stake there had their own private database, but they said, oh, it's really hard uh, for us to share the data with private with, with public authorities. Um, the, um, on the other hand, when it comes to protecting privacy, the incentive is to sell the data to the highest bidder, right? And that, uh, you know, Nick's written about that in, in, extensively. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, sort of shows the, the warped incentives, um, among many other warped incentives. And then the third is to think about this from a broader perspective. So, you know, as I began writing this paper, I ended up writing a second article because, you know, every time I presented this to colleagues in other fields, uh, they said, oh my gosh, this is happening in environmental law or education law, right? Where the federal government, especially under the Trump administration, tried to press um, and then promote education vouchers, et cetera, that, you know, would sort of displace uh, education policy from state schools um, and, and bring it more towards uh, private schools. Um, the, uh, and another example, uh, FERC, uh, the Federal uh, uh, Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, held that um, uh, private entities uh, should be given the right to decide whether to condemn certain state land and that the federal government didn't have a role in these condemnation decisions under the statute. Uh, to the extent that we live in a world where we're realizing that health outcomes are increasingly intertwined with education policy or energy policy and the like, uh, I think that this kind of privatization um, more, or, you know, in, increasingly shows how these kinds of decisions that do affect health end up getting delegated to private entities, sometimes with disastrous consequences. Excellent. Thank you, Craig. I want to turn a little bit to the, the issue of causation and, and um, how, how, we, how we arrived at this situation. You know, why, why are we so reliant on private companies for our public health response? And does it have to be this way? Craig mentioned the role of the federal government um, sort of pushing states out of the way in favor of private industry in some cases. Uh, what, what does industry bring to the table that government cannot provide? And I guess when it comes down to it, can we trust these companies? I'll, I'll jump in with, with a starting point for that um, related. Again, I'm going to keep bringing this back to vaccination. It's very much what's on my mind these days. But, um, you know, there are now uh, there's now been investigative reporting that's shown that the that Trump administration officials, specifically in the White House, but also uh, embedded within HHS, were actively lobbying Congress to deny requests from CDC, as well as from state and local health departments for financing for public public health infrastructure for vaccine distribution. They were actively lobbying against the need for that funding, saying that it was not necessary. Um, and the question becomes then, you know, this, this was with respect to the vaccine, which, you know, the Trump administration saw as its, you know, that would be its legacy, that would be its crowning achievement and, and, and the most successful component of pandemic response for the administration. So so what was the motivation for that? And I think it's it's it is part of a concerted effort to starve state and local governments of resources um, because that ultimately benefits a deregulatory agenda 
um, in, in other ways. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, we've also seen instances where privatization, um, you know, where you can directly tie decisions to privatize public health functions to political contributions by the beneficiaries of, of that privatization scheme. So uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, you know, investigative journalists pointed out that when he um, withheld doses of the vaccine from public health departments in Florida and instead directed those doses to be delivered directly to the public's chain of grocery store based pharmacies, um, that he's also benefited from political contributions from, from that same uh, uh, corporation. So I think that's certainly part of this story. I generally try to make it a much richer story than just the profit motive, though. I think there's more, um, more to talk about here, but I think that's obviously kind of a starting point for this discussion. I think there are a couple of examples, right? So um, so in, in both the papers, I sort of suggest, well, you know, in, in some instances, having private influence is not the worst thing, right? Uh, and, and one of the questions here is, you know, what we count as privatization and what we don't, but um, I'll, I'll table that for a second. Um, but to the extent that delegating policy decisions to private entities counts as privatization, um, or at least having them play an increasing role in the process and deciding that the greater role they have, the more privatization has occurred. So just taking that for the purposes of this comment. Um, there are two examples I offer in the paper. One would be uh, thinking about data tracking um, and depending on who you are, right? So um, there's reports about how several uh, public health entities during the COVID crisis wanted to collect data centrally um, using Apple and Google technology and Apple and Google um, said no we just aren't going to allow you to do that um, and uh, and so in theory you know that would be um, that would be you know one example for privacy advocates at least of uh, salutary private um, private engagement another example um, and uh, Patty Zettler and others explore this in a new paper is uh, thinking about how uh, private entities have played a role in a death penalty uh, context where they refuse to supply the drugs uh, for, um, for, for, for the death penalty. Again, now does this count as privatization or just private influence and policy where private entities just sort of protest the policy and refuse to provide the drugs? You know, we can, we can sort of think about that, but, um, but I do think that in certain cases, private entities have had a salutary effect, but um, often that is not the case. I, I think that we're not alone in our frustrations with the federal state interface and the level of friction there. Um, and so I think it's it's not uh, unnatural for federal entities to try and find ways to work around the states. Uh, just look today at the news that uh, the Republican GOP uh, attorneys general are pushing back on huge amounts of money that are flowing into their states. Um, I mean, there is a a classic example of this sort of um, this distrust uh, uh, that's going on. I think also that funding streams tend not to be consistent. Um, and so uh, you tend not to be able to build the sort of infrastructure to uh, adapt and to uh, uh, work with new programs. Whereas private institutions, privatization, private companies tend to have that built into their systems and so you can just kind of plug into that. So I think there's some some real sort of governmental sense of sort of that friction that's out there. Tomorrow? Yeah, I, I think I, I would add to everything that's been said that, of course, and this is um, common for the United States and for Europe, that we've seen decades of, of outsourcing and, and budget cuts and deregulation of, of the public sector. We know this in Europe as well. And this is 
accompanied by and strengthened by an important um, political discourse that tends to portray governments as inefficient, as slow, as obstacles towards innovation. Um, and this is a little bit um, the economist um Mariana Mazzucato puts it in these terms, a myth that we tell ourselves and that we tend to believe that the public sector is very inefficient and very bad at innovating, while in truth and in practice, what we know is that a lot of the innovation we have has been funded in large part by the public sector. So one of the examples that Mazzucato uh, discusses in her earlier work, The Entrepreneurial State, is the iPhone. So you had a lot of public investment that went into developing what turned into the iPhone. And in the final stages, a private company comes along, usually with one kind of brilliant Silicon Valley entrepreneur and puts the cherry on top and gets all the recognition for uh, the product. We've seen something similar with the vaccines. Now, the, the COVID vaccines, these were funded in large part by universities, by the public sector, by the taxpayer, by taxpayer funds. Uh, the European Union invested, I don't remember what the number is now, something like 60 million euros to fast track this vaccination program. And yet we call these vaccines by the names of the private companies that helped finish them off, so to speak. So there's a really important kind of myth that we have been sold, I think, but that we've also swallowed and that we reproduce that we should fight against. Uh, namely, that the public sector is not necessarily slow and inefficient. It can do very good things, and we need to back that. I just, I just want to add one quick note on, the, on, on, on Tamar's point about the vaccine development and, and production process being actually an example of a public-private partnership in which the public entities have been deeply engaged, not just in financing, but also in um, administration and development and production, you know, not just on the financial side, but also supply chain coordination has been critical to the to ramping up production of these vaccines with uh, the, the Trump and now Biden administration and other government entities um, deeply engaged in directing private suppliers of raw materials for the vaccines um, uh, uh, and, and coordinating those supply chains um, in ways that really belie the idea that you know, the vaccines are a success story of private entrepreneurial spirit, which they are, but it's harnessed and directed and supported in really important ways by public administration. I have a question from the audience I'd like to ask you, and uh, this comes from Bodan um, Ariskovich. And the question is, are, are, are private schools of public health uh, potentially an issue here? So uh, I guess private funding of our private, uh, of our public health work Force, could that be an issue? And I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the funding of um, public health education. I, I do remember that a couple of years ago or a few years back, the Harvard School of Public Health turned away some funding from Philip Morris to study how to reduce the uh, harm from cigarettes. And I know that um, in general, over the past decade or so, funding for federal uh, for public health has decreased generally. But um, could that be an issue? You know, is there perhaps a lack of funding for our public health professionals um, or or perhaps, you know, perhaps industry is contributing uh, a large percentage of the funding for that education. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on the role of education here? I'll just say briefly that I, I think it's certainly true that um, schools of public health and universities more broadly are implicated in championing private innovation over public investments. I don't see that as confined to private institutions, though. I think that, um, you know, as, as it's, it's a similar kind of story as public public investments in public institutions have declined amidst kind of austerity and other 
other considerations. Um, even public, you know, uh, public universities are accepting quite a lot of financing um, from private industry. Um, and I think, you know, more broadly, uh, the money that flows into this and the conflict of interest that it creates uh, permeates academic thinking and research and, and scholarship on these issues in, in a multitude of ways. So I, I wouldn't see it as kind of dichotomous between publicly, public and, and private university institutions, but um, but a broader broader problem and, and really just a place where we need a lot of skepticism and, and a critical perspective and, and to question uh, the orientation of our research and scholarship and to question uh, the influences on it. I think both uh, as far as uh, education and, and investment more generally, uh, the challenge is how do you make the case for public health expenditure when you're not in the middle of an emergency, right? How, how do you make this consistent? How do you tie public health formally and with great funding to being the leader in in dealing with social determinants of health, of dealing with zip code health and those kinds of issues and, and making public health important, you know, making making public health <laughs> great again, right, it is, is a huge key to this and, and, and having consistent, strong funding, even in the best of times. Well, luckily we have pandemics to remind us from time to time. <laughs> I mean, that may be the one good thing that comes out of this is um, the current pandemic just has shown us so glaringly how unprepared we were in the richest of countries because of some of the uh, budget cuts in the public sector, like public health. Uh, there's no one who's been properly prepared for this. And I think that's a clear lesson uh, to be learned. I also think um, I agree very much with what Lindsay was saying. Um, um, public lack in public funding, I think, is not an empirical fact, right? It's a political decision. So it can be there, but we can change that. And so to say that private companies, uh, especially now what we're seeing big tech kind of step into a vacuum where states have retracted, um, if those are European ones or, or what's happening in the United States, we've let that happen in a sense. So they're filling in a vacuum, which we let happen. And that's also, I think, a bit of a wake up call if we see the levels of involvement of uh, industry and big tech today in the pandemic response, for example, or in medical research, the, the area I'm looking at, or education. I mean, it's, it's all sectors right now, all sectors that traditionally Traditionally, have been either um, public sectors or or uh, run by governments or outsourced to private companies, but that would be regulated by governments in a way that would make them accountable. And that's not the situation right now. We had a question, uh, another question from an anonymous uh, contributor that was kind of on that point. Are, are there some areas where private entities are more capable to set up the infrastructure more efficiently than government? I think it sounds like uh, many of you think that's that's largely a myth and this is just more a, a political uh, decision than a, a question of, of uh, uh, capabilities or, or resources. Uh, but I want to turn now to uh, COVID-19 contact tracing uh, apps, which might more accurately be called exposure notification apps. Apple and Google partnered to produce an app that's been adopted by some governments around the world. Some privacy experts have praised the companies for the thought they've given to user privacy. Others disagree and argue that the apps jeopardize user privacy. Tamar, you, you've written about this issue and you've pointed out that 
uh, privacy should not be our only concern. We should also be concerned about power dynamics and what you call sphere transgression. I was wondering if you could comment on that a bit. Uh, what is what is sphere transgression or sphere influence? Aside from the risk, you know, this privacy risk, what, what's concerning about giving uh, corporations influence in the in yeah, domain? Yeah. So just to give a, a bit of background. Um, so Apple and Google didn't develop an app and it's important to get this clear. They developed the infrastructure and API on which apps can run. Uh, and that's a very important point because it, uh, developing an API allows one to remain neutral in a way that you don't get implicated into discussions, national discussions on the development of an app. Uh, and when Google came out in, uh, it was April of last year, as a joint project for this with this API that would allow other contact tracing apps to run on them, they had adopted some of the main um, technical privacy specifications that privacy experts around the world had said are necessary uh, for privacy preserving contact tracing apps. And namely, that was the use of um, Bluetooth uh, for collecting and sharing non-traceable identifiers through phones, and especially using a decentralized storage system. So you have centralized and decentralized storage systems. A centralized system would mean that the data that an app collects would be stored on a centralized server like that of a public health uh, institution or a national government. The decentralized versions means data stays on individual phones. So it's much more difficult to get to a lot of the kind of creepy surveillance state uh, situations that privacy experts were worried about. So lo and behold, Apple and Google came out with this very privacy-friendly API, and it was quickly um, embraced by many of the world's privacy experts and many governments as well. Even governments who were busy developing decentralized apps kind of jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, great, this is the, the, this is the, the privacy-friendly API, we will use it as well. Now, what happened here, I think, is that the focus on privacy, which is an important focus, uh, but one that's becoming maybe too important when we think about the risks involved in digitalization and the involvement of big tech in, in, in all sectors of society, rendered that, the, that in the debate, centralization came to be equated with unfriendly uh, privacy. Yeah. So we had this equation with centralization equals privacy equals good, uh, decentralization equals privacy equals good, and centralization is bad. It's, it's not uh, privacy friendly. At the same time, though, there were many public health experts, epidemiologists, virologists, who had good reasons to say that a centralized system may be better in a pandemic. So you get better oversight over clusters. You can deal better with false negatives and false positives that the app can often come up with. There are many reasons which don't have to do with privacy uh, for which centralized systems may be better. But by developing the decentralized system, what Apple and Google effectively did was determine from any national sovereign states which apps they could run. So you had to use a decentralized app to work with Apple and Google. And quite some states, um, France, for example, which actually stuck to its centralized app, um, but also Latvia, some other countries mentioned that even when they tried to uh, um, negotiate with Apple and Google about how to let their national apps run on the API, really came up against a brick wall. And so Apple and Google very clear that you either use the API the way we want it to be used, or you don't work with us. And then basically you're on your own. So you need this API, you need the infrastructure if you want an app that will uh, be interoperable between countries, and if you want it to run on iPhones and Android phones, right? So you're basically stuck with that. So Google and Apple had a very strong say in determining what was actually a public 
health issue and even a global public health policy issue. So they determined that. They made that choice. Um, what I called sphere transgressions in the paper that you were mentioning, uh, Mason, is that I think we can look at this in terms of, um, and this I take from uh, uh, the political philosopher Michael Walter, who has a book that was very famous some decades ago. He wrote this in the 1980s called Spheres of Justice. And Walter says, well, society, our social life is um, divided in a sense into different spheres that have their own notion of justice. So we have the market, we have education, we have welfare, we have politics, we even have family life. Uh, we can have inequality within these spheres. That can happen. Some people can have better education and some less based on maybe cognitive abilities. Uh, some people will get more votes in an election, giving them more political power than others. What we need for a just society is that these inequalities do not translate across spheres. So an advantage in one sphere, like political power, should not give you better education or better health care or even more loved ones. Okay, we need to make sure that these inequalities remain within these spheres. What I think we could argue is happening with um, Google and Apple, in this case, in the in the contact, in the uh, automation of contact tracing and the API, but also in other examples, is that they have a certain advantage in a technical sphere of digital goods, they are very good at what they do. So they are very good at data collection, at data storage, at data analysis in some cases, at building data digital infrastructure, but that expertise is translating into other spheres. So here we've seen how it's moved into the sphere of public health, where it almost in a sense, you could say, has crowded out the expertise, the traditional spherical expertise of some epidemiologists, of some human contact tracers who would have done things differently, of some virologists. So it's moved into that sphere, but it's also moved into the sphere of politics in the sense of um, that they determined what pandemic response would be to a certain extent on a global scale. So this is all countries in the world now. Most of the ones that I know are running their apps on this API. That's the case in most European countries. It's the case for many states in the United States and many other parts of the world. Um, so this sphere transgression, I think, is worrisome. And privacy misses the point, again, because this has nothing to do with data regulation or data exchange. There has been some discussion about, well, is this API really as privacy friendly as Google and Apple claim it is? I, I'm not enough of, of a technical person to answer that question. But what I see is that what, app, what Apple and Google did here is by not creating an app, but developing the infrastructure, they they don't have to peddle in data. This is not a question of data being, of people being re-identified or of data being repurposed or monetized. They've provided the infrastructure. And by doing that, they managed to, and that's where I said that privacy can be a bit of a smokescreen. Everybody's focused on the privacy question. And we kind of missed that they have built this infrastructure and that they are determining to some extent how we respond to the pandemic. Um, GDPR doesn't really help us there in Europe. And I think the HIPAA, HIPAA regulation doesn't help us there either. So we need types of regulation that can see this across these sectors and what this rise in computational infrastructural power means across society, especially again, when these are actors who do not have the spherical expertise or legitimacy of, of what we would want for people making decisions in public health, nor do they have the expertise, I would say, at the cross-sectorial level of, of, of politics. They are not accountable in the way that 
democratically run states are. They are not accountable in the way that governments are, or even the private companies that governments um, delegate uh, uh, the provision of public services to, who, who need to respond to government when something goes wrong. I think this idea of uh, uh, you know, transgressing these spheres, these domains, is is very compelling and very important. Uh, would anybody else like to jump in on that or on the topic of COVID contact tracing? Nick? Just to really agree with Tamar, and I really enjoyed the uh, the article, by the way. I thought it was a really great piece of work. Um, I've, I've sort of been in this space a little bit, but used slightly different language in that I think that what I identified was this reliance on privacy rather than a broader perspective. But the, the language I tended to use or the, the space I tended to move into was the idea of social goods and public goods. And I, I started talking about this, um, I guess, that Yale project, Mason, that you and I were both involved in um, on AI um, and looking at uh, the training data that's used for health AI algorithms. Um, and that is essentially public data yeah. that is being used for these uh, uh, private uh, systems. And uh, the US and US policy and US law doesn't seem to get that, right? Whereas I think uh, European uh, analysis uh, tends to, to, to see that, that, that second uh, series of questions. Um, for example, the, um, the UK House of Lords in a select committee on AI um, uh, said that it, it's, this, is, this is NHS, this is public health system data, and it shouldn't be used unless value can be recouped. Um, and uh, many of you will have heard of the, uh, uh, the problems that happened when uh, one of the Google, um, uh, uh, in fact, Alphabet's DeepMind got heavily involved with um, a, a London healthcare trust uh, and, and uh, uh, took a lot of data that people didn't really understand why they needed it, uh, which caused a similar kind of problem. So I think uh, broadening the discussion, which I think is quite difficult in the US, away from just privacy to social goods and public goods, I think is, is important. I'll just jump in and uh, uh, leaving the privacy and even the data questions behind, just say a bit about the crowding out of um, epidemiological expertise and public health practice in this space by kind of technological solutionism. And I, I think I see that as connected to a broader problem throughout the last year, which is the kind of um, uh, really tragic impoverishment of basic concepts of public health practice and basic commitments to social justice to which those richer um, uh, understandings of public health practice are tied. You know, it, and I appreciate you for referring to them as exposure notification apps because it's very different from what contact tracing involves. Contact tracing is not just um, a much deeper form of investigation, but it's also the provision of supports for isolation, right? And so the, the idea that this kind of technological solution of an exposure notification app really pushes those costs and responsibilities onto individuals and households um, in a way that is deeply antithetical to, to, to public health ethics and, and public health practice, essentially saying, you know, download this app, and then it's going to tell you that maybe you had an exposure, the information isn't that useful, and then you've got to grapple with, you know, you've got to do the investigative work of what that might have been and whether to take it seriously and what to do about it next and what steps to take to, to responsibly protect your community. That's something we've seen 
across the board in the pandemic. I just want to highlight one other example that might seem quite different, but I see it as related, which is the, the kind of warping of the term social distancing in this pandemic, right? Social distancing was originally conceived of as something that governments and institutional leaders do to, um, to shrink the, the kind of in-person social networks, the social mixing that happens um, in face-to-face contact, uh, and to do that in a way that doesn't rely on individual responsibility or individual decision-making, right, by closing gathering places, for example. And it's been warped very quickly and, and, and intentionally, particularly uh, in, in the U.S. by governors and states that wanted to reopen those gathering places. It's been warped into something that individuals are responsible for doing, including while being required to report for duty, report for work in crowded indoor gathering places, you know, that it becomes staying six feet apart from other people, which is which was always conceived of as a distinct intervention, you know, thought of as physical distancing from social distancing. So just this incredible um, personal responsibility focus of every aspect of pandemic response over the past year, which, you know, I view as tragic in part because it gives, it's now what people think of, you know, everyday people think of that as being what public health is about. And, and I view it as completely antithetical to what public health is about. I like this point about um, uh, contact uh, exposure notification apps being confused for as contact a replacement perhaps for contact tracing and that's a story that get, a narrative that gets put out there and the media kind of spreads it around and in reality it's a much more complex and richer uh, process uh, contact and, and you know that's so common to automation processes in general we see that time and time again that what automation does is take a practice which has these deeply rich, implicit norms and skills and values attached to it. And it just automates this kind of obvious surface level of what se- what the practice seems to be about. It looks like contact tracing is just about informing individuals that they may be at risk. So let's just automate that. And then we get this kind of automation away of everything that makes the practice what it is that's so important. And I feel that it hasn't been said enough in all of the discussion that we've had around contact tracing. And I don't think that manual contact tracers, this is the case I know for for the Netherlands, were really involved in any discussion about how you make an app, how you automate the practice itself. And I think we're about to fall into the same trap again with vaccine passports, right? Mm -hmm. The vaccine passport on its face is going to be um, some hash design on your phone or on your Apple Watch. Um, But buried beneath that are layers and layers of incredibly complex, nuanced questions about how this should work, how different populations are going to be negatively impacted, um, the discrimination potential, uh, uh, the inequities as to whether you have access to these technologies and so on and so forth. Uh, But all that we care about, we care about is where's my app? When's it coming out? I think that's right. I want to stay on the the vaccine certificates or passports and the kind of technological solutionism around that a little longer too. It also, and and Nick, you've mentioned kind of fragmentation and privatization as being important fixtures that that the pandemic response has has crashed up against. Another one is just individualism, right? Individualistic mindset and orientation, not in the sense of like, you know, I only care about myself, but also in the sense of individuals being the most relevant unit for thinking about public health and thinking about pandemic response. 
um, you know, a, a vaccine passport really emphasizes this um, sort of intuitive notion that vaccination is about my safety and my individual status as being vaccinated or not. Whereas what we're really aiming for here is to reduce community transmission to the point where it's safe for everyone to do things like go to concerts or eat in, in, in dine in restaurants. I my expectation is that the focus on vaccination passports, particularly you know something in your phone that that shows that you were vaccinated, um, I think that's going to fizzle uh, in much the same way that that exposure not notification apps did. I think vaccination status and 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 immunization certificates will play a role in things like international travel, particularly to places that have successfully contained um, or or eradicated community spread. I don't anticipate that it's going to play a significant role in things like whether you can go to a concert or whether you can eat in a restaurant. I think we're going to get to the point very rapidly, I hope very rapidly, where community transmission is reduced to the extent that that's just safe for everyone to do and nobody's going to bother with the kind of burdensome or or, or expensive or or but but like flashy apps that will say, you know, who who's vaccinated and who can enter. Um so that's that's my guess about about where that's headed. Uh, but it really does warp our our sense of why vaccination matters and what its benefits are in a, in, in terms of framing and deeply individualistic ways. And I think uh, that deep individualistic feature of, of the pandemic response, obviously, it uh, runs counter to uh, solidarity, um, which I think uh, is uh, uh, European representative uh, can glow slightly about uh, that, that we're not particularly good at. And I think uh, that's really been sort of uh, thrown out um, and it's been one of the great sadnesses here. And I think bringing it back to sort of the topics at hand, I don't see incentives in private companies, particularly in big tech. I don't see the existence of incentives to rebuild or build solidarity. They will build their own communities like Facebook has done, uh, but that is for their purposes, not really for the purposes of those who join those communities. Indeed, I'd, I'd even sort of take it a step further and say that, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a sort of connection, right? A sort of conceptual connection between individualism, uh, these technocratic solutions and privatization. Um, because uh, part of the idea is that private companies um, are there, work on the market to validate individuals as consumers um, who, you know, just sort of live in the sort of supply and demand world, whereas the government represents a more solidaristic enterprise, um, which is antithetical almost to the idea of the individual as consumer on the market working with private companies who are acting to preserve market share uh, and, you know, um, you know, subscribe to and, 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 and do what individuals want. Um, and I think that that also connects to the idea, um, you know, that Lindsay mentioned regarding uh, technocracy, the idea that, um, you know, there's this sort of easy technological solution um, that individually, you know, everyone can download an app and, you know, figure it out, right? As opposed to us having to outsource it to some kind of uh, national infrastructure or having, building a national infrastructure to perform these tasks. It's really a shame, though, because I think that is not a necessity. So I completely agree that what we tend to see, we're in a, in a, in a, in a quite terrible situation where 
where digitalization tends to go in tandem with privatization and with individualization, but there is no necessity to that either. So we could be using digital technologies in a way which promotes exactly some of the values that we're discussing here in a way that does think or configure data as a public or a common good. We can think of data commons, we can think of data cooperatives. There are attempts to do this. We can think of public digital infrastructures. It doesn't have to be that way. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, we also need to be careful. And I'm also speaking to myself, throwing out the baby with the bathwater when we do this uh, technology and big tech critique. Um, we could reap a lot of benefits from this, but it requires some more vision and it requires some more understanding of what can go wrong and which actors are involved. We are running short on time. Unfortunately, there are so many other topics I wanted to get to, including online speech and the role of social media in uh, addressing misinformation. Um, but I think um, what I'm going to do instead is just give each panelist an opportunity to kind of give concluding remarks um, uh, and uh, you know maybe uh, 30 seconds or, a, or so on um, uh, what what you know where do we go from here? What should we do? Um, and what do you think are you know perhaps the most important um, areas to attack to improve our, our public health responses? And um, I, I'll go to uh, uh, Nick first. I've been thinking a lot about data uh, during the pandemic, and um, I think part of the U.S. failure uh, was with regard to data. Um, some of it uh, was sort of because of politicization um, and 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 the kind of the, the 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 fights between the White House, HHS, and CDC over data collection and distribution. Um, uh, was not uh, was effectively about as uh, as ruinous in destroying public trust as the misinformation that we saw being churned out through social media. Um, so I think there was clearly a lack of not only because of, of politicization, there was a lack of centralized leadership. Uh, there was a lack of uh, good data governance at the federal and state level. Um, everything from a lack of interoperability, basic data standardization, uh, lack of granularity on socio-demographic variables, chronic under-reporting of, for example, asymptomatic infections, deaths, nursing home deaths, and so on. Um, and so I think uh, a, a lot of attention needs to be paid to, to rebuilding uh, the, the data part of public health, um, bringing in good uh, data collection, data governance, um, and data distribution. And I think this panel really has exposed a great challenge in doing that as we rebuild that. Is it going to be rebuilt by private entities? Is it going to be rebuilt by public entities? Or as where Lindsay started off today, by public-private uh, partnerships. And I think that's going to be a massive challenge for us going forward. Uh, so I love when Petri Flom events ask for me to sum up my presentation in a tweet. And I'll go with uh, public responsibility, interconnectedness uh, between individuals and communities, um, mutual aid. These things are not incompatible, not inherently incompatible with privatization. 
and can be served through public-private partnerships, uh, but a hands-off approach without a strong role for public coordination, accountability, oversight, um, cannot be a substitute for investments in public, public health infrastructure. Thank you. Craig? The ethical underpinnings of privatization are important. We need to think about why it is we are privatizing. If the reason we're privatizing is simply to try and divest responsibility from the collective, then that is a bad reason for privatization. Um, Stop that. Thank you. And Tamar, and thank you for joining us from the Netherlands. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Um, I could make life easy and just agree with the previous speakers because I agree with everything they said. I would just stress again that yes, fund in the fund, public funding in the public sector is extremely important, and we need to be building public infrastructures for some of what we're seeing, which have been privatized. This is not to say that we cannot have public-private partnerships, but I think that we, as a collective of citizens, as governments, etc., as states, need to understand that we have a strong negotiating stance, and we need to stop giving in so easily and lay down some conditions as to what good public-private partnerships would be. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. I want to thank our panelists, uh, thank the Petrie Flom Center, and as well as the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Uh, This has been a great conversation. We'll we'll have to reconvene uh, to discuss this topic further.